from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the CEA podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Center for European Reform, and today I'm in conversation with Beth Oppenheim, who's also a researcher and a co-host of this very podcast here at the CER. And Beth and I are talking today about European arms exports and the role of the EU in arms exports policy. Now, why are we talking about this now? Arms exports were, of course, the focus of much public attention over the course of the last year because European governments basically could not agree whether it was right or not to export weapons to Saudi Arabia at a time when the regime was involved in a war in Yemen. And Germany in particular frustrated partner countries and industry with what was perceived to be an inconsistent and unpredictable course, going as far as an outright export ban to Saudi Arabia on all German-made systems and components. But this conflict also points to a wider-ranging issue, and one that will have implications going beyond just this one dispute, and that is that as long as Europeans and EU member states are unable to agree on a shared arms export policy, they will struggle to develop into a credible foreign policy and defense player. So that's what we want to get into in this podcast. We want to talk about what arms export policy is good for, both the decision to export or not to export, and how that is linked to Europe's foreign policy goals and the EU's ambition of developing its own defense capability, and whether or not the EU is even the right organization to deal with these issues. We've also done quite extensive research on the subject recently with a long report for the CER forthcoming. But the first thing we have to talk about, of course, is something that was almost never mentioned in the whole Exports Malaki this year, and that is that, in fact, the EU does actually have an arms export policy. Beth? So I think the key emphasis here is that there's a real difference between what is said on paper and what actually happens in practice. And obviously that was borne out with what we saw happen with the Saudi Arabia arms decisions and the divergences between what different member states decided to do. But there very much is a in theory here. And so the, the EU actually has its own common set of rules, which is called the Common Position on Arms Export Controls. And that was first introduced back in 2008. And so EU member states are legally bound, they've all agreed, to uphold high common standards and convergence in their arms transfers. So that's the EU level. And then there's also a wider international provision, which is this International Arms Trade Treaty. And that is a quite a similar document, which establishes the highest possible common international standards for the global arms trade. And so EU member states, they should be held to pretty high standards in theory. So the common position, this EU document, is eight criteria that member states are supposed to test their export licenses against. And just an example of what one of those criteria might be, and an important one which will probably come up quite a lot in our discussion today, is respect for international humanitarian law, which which governs armed conflicts, and respect for international human rights law in the country that you're exporting to. But then this is where the conflict comes in, which is that 
whilst all this stuff is set out in theory, it's legally binding, et cetera, et cetera, arms exports are still a national matter. And that's because of this Article 346, which is in one of the treaties. So it's the Treaty on the Functioning of the EU. And that says that a member state can take measures that it considers necessary in relation to arms trade and production in order to protect its security interests. And that is something that gets invoked quite often in these kind of debates. So we have this issue where the common position is not really being enforced properly and member states are able to decide how they want to implement it themselves. And there's also no formal mechanism that allows the EU to sanction member states if they don't comply with it. So the European Court of Justice doesn't have powers under, or very, very limited powers under common foreign and security policy. So this is a matter for national courts. But actually we find in practice that even national courts very rarely enforce the common position. And that means that we have this issue where licensing authorities, so arms export authorities, are able to go with quite a loose interpretation of the common position because they know that there's probably not going to be any material consequences for that. Yeah, so just to be perfectly clear, on the basis of this EU common position that is legally binding and that all EU member states have signed up to, the arms exports to Saudi Arabia over the last year while Saudi Arabia was involved in the conflict in Yemen, would not have been legal, right? Well, this is a really contested issue um, and is something that we're seeing being discussed at the moment across the EU. So the campaign against arms trade took legal action out against the British government for its decision to license arms exports to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. That has been an ongoing process and at first the court turned it down and then it went to the Court of Appeal recently and this has been quite a landmark judgment because the Court of Appeal actually ruled that the license of billions of pounds of arms by Britain to Saudi Arabia for use in Yemen broke British law and the British law in question is, is very closely based upon the EU common position. So basically, member states have to translate the EU common position into their own national rule book, but it's very much close to the eight criteria. So in effect, that it's also broken the common position in turn. And that was because the UK government had failed to properly assess or even really assess at all whether the Saudi-led coalition had violated international humanitarian law during the Yemen conflict. Right, so... This court case was led at the national UK level, it wasn't led at the European level, and that is because the European Court of Justice doesn't have, as you said earlier, any authority over these kinds of issues because basically of this Article 346, the infamous article, um, infamous to everyone who deals with EU defence, because this really is at the heart of why defence is so outside the EU's reach, because it is still perceived by so many in European governments to be really um, a matter of a country's national sovereignty. And because arms exports are so closely entangled with national security interests on the one hand and economic interests on the other hand, many do not want to give up any control in this area. But of course, arms exports aren't just an economic interest and they aren't just a national interest, but they're also closely interlinked with the kind of foreign policy positions that the EU wants to drive in the international arena. And in our research, it was really important to us to look into the actual usefulness of arms exports to foreign policy 
both the idea that you would export something, uh, that you would export a weapon system to support your foreign policy positions, and the idea that uh, you would ban an export, again, to support your foreign policy positions. As you say, we've explored a bit about why we need an arms export policy. Why do we export at all? I think it's a bit more obvious about why we control. So maybe to start with the control aspect, which is, you know, we want to prevent weapons from falling into the wrong hands, if we put it simply. And that's because by restricting arms supplies, the EU or an international actor or a state can attempt to change the behaviour of another state. And so arms embargoes can constrain aggressive behaviour from another state by depriving a country of military resources. In terms of why we might want to export weapons, this is a more contested area and this is about the idea of whether we want to put weapons in the so-called right hands. And this is the idea that the EU can help its allies, it can help its partners to maintain technological parity with or even superiority over shared adversaries. And also arms exports can make it easier to conduct joint operations with partners. So Europeans might want to export to a partner or an ally in a crisis-ridden region in order to attempt to make a contribution to regional stability. So an example might be that the British government provides explosive devices and training to the Tunisian army, which was in order to try to increase Tunisia's defences against Islamic State. But of course, it has to be said that export of arms to conflict zones is very risky and needs to always be part of a comprehensive support programme. But you don't want weapons to then be diverted and put into the wrong hands or to somehow end up actually fueling the, the conflict and instability in, in the region. And actually, this is a huge issue that we run into writing this and that many people have encountered before, which is that in theory, it's quite um, straightforward to outline the case for arms exports in, you know, under certain conditions and to certain partners. In practice, it's hard to control and it's hard to really see whether it has worked, whether it ever works. So basically, in order to achieve these goals of either controlling weapons so that they don't cause further instability or by supplying weapons in order to try to contribute towards regional stability. We need the EU to be acting together because when countries start to act in different ways and to diverge, that undermines the power of foreign policy. Something that you talk about a lot in the paper is the way in which we also need the EU to be acting together in order to build its defence industrial base, right? Yeah, so this is sort of the hard defense and defense industrial angle to this whole conversation. And just a little bit of background, maybe. So EU member states want the EU to become a more serious defense player. They want a Europe that protects, um, including protecting its citizens and its interests militarily. And especially over the last few years, the EU has really amped up its efforts in this policy field. And one important aspect of that is that EU member states want to be able to develop and build the capabilities, the weapon systems and the equipment which they need in military operations. And they don't just want to rely on having to buy that stuff elsewhere off the shelf and then accept all the strings that are often attached with buying these, these systems. But in order to be able to do that, Europeans have to tackle their fragmented and, and weak defense industry because EU member states have spent relatively little money on defense in the last 20 or so years and because when they have spent it, they have often spent it purely on national businesses and used national defense industries as a sort of 
job creation factory instead of looking at spending more efficiently on stuff that Europeans might actually need if and when they want to deploy together since we will most likely deploy in an alliance with other Europeans. And so we've ended up with lots of the same stuff being produced uh, in many member states and some of the important kit that we need not being produced at all. And so what does that have to do with experts? A lot actually because the EU wants to tackle this fragmented and inefficient defense market. They want to spend money to encourage member states to coordinate better and to develop capabilities collaboratively. And the way they want to do that is through the defense fund. So through spending money to incentivize member states to work together. And the problem is that in order to do that, in order to embark on these long projects like building the next European fighter jet or the next tank, which often take over a decade to develop, countries need to really trust each other that it will be worth it from both a security perspective and an economic perspective. And if they cannot agree on an arms export policy beforehand, the whole project could be killed over the countries involved disagreeing on this. So if one member state decides to stop exports, even when it's only the parts this member state produces, everyone is affected. And this is taken very seriously as a risk by governments and industries. We've seen in the aftermath of the fight over Germany's arms exports ban, some member states, some industries have threatened that in the future they would just have to develop Germany-free products to make sure that they don't encounter another situation like this. And then secondly, this also plays into another debate on European defense industrial policy because European defense firms could not rely on Europeans actually spending enough money to sustain them in the past the pressure to export is quite high on some of them. Now, if the EU would spend more money on defense, that could relieve some of that pressure and governments could become a bit more picky maybe about who they export to. On the other hand, we want to also avoid Europeans producing only for a European market because presumably that would decrease competitive pressure and potentially lead to worse products. And in the end, this really comes back to the more important issue that if countries disagree fundamentally over which arms exports are good and which are bad, then all this industrial strategy doesn't really get us anywhere. What we really have to talk about is European foreign policy and how that interlinks with arms exports. Yeah, exactly. And I think something that we realised when we were writing the paper is that diverging arms export policies undermine Europe's common foreign and security policy goals. But that very divergence often takes place when the EU doesn't have a clear foreign policy towards a state or a conflict. And when member states are, are divided in their analysis of, of what the threat is and how it can be resolved. And I think a good example of that is Saudi Arabia. So we've already talked a bit about the British court case. Then we've had also the European Parliament saying that exports to the Saudi-led coalition violate the common position. And we've had UN reports that, that point to those abuses of, of international law. And so against that uncertain legal backdrop, you still have countries, in particular France and the UK, which are the second and third largest suppliers of arms to the Saudis after the United States. So we have European member states providing really a significant amount of exports to to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And that's being justified on the basis that arms exports to the Saudi-led coalition 
are lawful, first of all, which, so the, the UK government is going to be appealing this UK Court of Appeal decision. They, they won't take it lying down, that's for sure. And also there's a strategic question here. And this is something that I've written about in another paper, which is about Europe and Saudi Arabia more broadly and about the question of whether Saudi Arabia is still really a useful regional partner for the EU. So the traditional narrative has always been that we have to embrace Saudi Arabia because it's an important counterbalance to the dominance of Iran. But the belligerent foreign policy of the new-ish crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, throws that into question, really. And the most obvious example of this belligerence is in Yemen. So I think it's worth questioning how useful the Saudis are still to us. And France and the UK are still clinging to this idea of Saudi Arabia as as this important strategic partner, which is also a convenient cover in a way to preserve a very lucrative trade in arms. And so you've got France and the UK on one side, and then you have other member states, most notably Germany, that have recognised and responded to the change dynamics in the region. And, you know, that's not entirely values-driven. There's also an awareness, I think, of the optics of perpetuating a humanitarian crisis abroad that doesn't look very good. It doesn't look good when there are exposés of European arms being used to bomb civilians, etc. And so you've had a reaction from some countries like Germany, Finland, Denmark, Norway, Netherlands, who have issued their own national arms embargoes to varying degrees in response to... Interestingly, actually, a lot of these came about not in response to Saudi Arabia's involvement in Yemen, but actually in response to the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in October in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul, which understandably caused a huge amount of international concern, but isn't really particularly related to the question of arms exports to Saudi Arabia. So these kind of divergences, it doesn't show the European Union as a powerful foreign policy actor. And also, it's not really possible to actually have an impact and attempt to alleviate the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and to support European interests when there's this level of fragmentation in the approach. And we also looked at a couple of other examples. One of the examples we looked at was of Syria, and that laid bare Europe's lack of common policy vision via its diverging arms export policies again. So the EU imposed an arms embargo on Syria in 2011 after Bashar al-Assad cracked down on pro-democracy protesters. And after a period of time, it looked like Assad was going to win the civil war. The UK and France started agitating to lift the embargo. They wanted to arm rebel groups and they made the argument that this would level the playing field and this could force Assad to the negotiating table. And that led basically to a situation where there was no consensus to renew the embargo and the arms embargo was lifted in 2013. So again, there's this lack of credibility from the EU, this lack of ability to form a common position around threats to its security and around a humanitarian crises. So in our research, what we did is basically that we looked at these case studies, we looked at the EU's defence ambitions and its foreign policy ambitions and how they are really being undermined by these divergences uh, among member states. And so there were two questions for us to answer. One is, is there value at all in harmonizing arms exports in trying to get to a common European position? And I think for both of us, the answer was yes, in light of all the findings that we've just detailed. And then the second question is, is the EU the right organization to do this and is the EU the solution? Yes, so I think throughout what we've been saying is that 
the EU needs a properly coordinated arms export policy. In an ideal world, it would be more centralised. If, we, if we're imagining that member states' concerns are not relevant to this, this is completely fictional world, ideal world, what we're suggesting is that the EU would need to have some kind of enforcement or sanctions mechanism that could hold governments to account for breaking the rules. And the EU could establish a supervisory body which could be controlled either by the EU High Representative of Foreign Policy or by the Commission, and they would report on violations of the common position by member states. And then the Commission could then refer member states that refuse to follow the rules to the European Court of Justice. But the big but is that this would require a change to the EU fundamental treaties, and everyone that works in EU policy world knows that opening the treaties is, is like a whole other story, Pandora's box. So, Sophia, what do you think? Is it is it possible? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. The The treaties are a huge issue. And the, just the general sovereignty concerns over these defense matters, as we've, we've spoken about um, earlier in this podcast, are a huge problem here. Member states uh, show very little appetite for Europeanizing arms export policy. Particularly France is often cited as a member state that um, really does not want to give up any authority to Brussels uh, on this on these matters, because for France this is coming from the fear that you know the their arms export policy might have to get become more restrictive. There are others um, in civil society and in other member states who think actually it would be problematic for the opposite reason because any EU level arms export policy would necessarily be at a sort of lowest common denominator level and might actually mean that arms export policies become less restrictive for mem- for some member states. So even though the Council of the EU is currently reviewing the EU's guidelines on arms exports, um, I think we can expect relatively little from that. That being said, there has been some competence creep <laughs> by the Commission uh, in recent years in the field of defence which might suggest that this whole issue could be shifting in the long term. So I'm not talking about the next couple of years here, but the fact that the Commission is now involved in defence for the first time through the budget, through budgetary means, it has money to spend on these issues, that might increase its regulatory power in the medium to long term. And, you know, it it sort of makes sense that if there are EU-funded capabilities, that then the Commission should have a role in deciding the export policies, at least for these EU-funded capabilities. And if you look at the European Defence Fund regulations, so the regulation that introduces the Commission's role in defence industrial policy for the first time, I mean, it's very obvious that member states put a veto on anything that is actual control of the EU. But you can see a few small loopholes here and there, you know. There is something in there that says that if member states uh, use the money not in good faith, they might have to pay it back. If uh, exports contradict the interests of the EU, of course, these interests are very poorly defined at the moment. But this just to say that there is an opening here. The risk that comes with that, of course, is that if countries can see that working with the EU makes exports harder, (laughs) means that they have to follow a more restrictive export policy, they might simply choose not to work with the EU altogether and instead collaborate on an intergovernmental level 
or simply develop weapon systems on their own again. And the EU's bet is that they won't be able to afford that financially uh, and that the money offered by the EU is enough incentive to overlook the increased restrictions. Plus, for some industries, actually, even the restrictive predictability might be preferable to the unpredictable policy, the back and forth of the previous years. I'm thinking specifically of the German industries here who might appreciate just a firm, predictable line to follow, even if that is more restrictive than national policies. What is clear, though, is that without this functioning European arms export regime, the EU is unlikely to live up to its full foreign policy and defense potential. But there are things below this, what I think Beth, you just called fictional and idealistic level of control. There are things below this level that the EU could do right now to improve arms export policy. And in our research, we identify four recommendations that I think we could go through very briefly now. And then if people are interested to learn more, they can read the longer piece. What do you think, Beth? The first one that we came up with was to improve the common position. And as you've just said, Sophia, that's something that's already ongoing. So some of the things that we thought would be helpful improvements would be to introduce more strict reporting deadlines. So member states at the moment have to report every year on the export licenses that they've issued, and that's specified by the common position. But lots of member states, as it is, are failing to report properly and on time. Secondly, the EU should establish clear criteria and guidelines for assessing whether to export cyber surveillance technology. So another recommendation that we focused on in our research was the issue of implementing stronger end-use controls at the EU level. So this is about the fact that European countries, we think, should have a responsibility to ensure that if they import weapons, they don't end up in the wrong hands. There are ways that the EU can help with that through financial and personal resources. Just a final recommendation or a nod to reality really is expanding intergovernmental agreements. So we know this old EU adage that nothing can happen without a compromise between France and Germany and that such a compromise, if it can then be applied to the rest of the EU, could extend it to include other countries' arms exports or member states could sign similar agreements by themselves if we want these bilateral intergovernmental agreements to strengthen rather than erode EU foreign policy objectives, I think they would have to go much further than the one that has been proposed by Berlin and Paris. But baby steps. Beth, thank you very much for talking this through on the podcast. We have a huge issue here. This is a problem. It's going to remain a problem. And even though it's very difficult to think about solutions, this is what Europeans will have to do. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.